open up in prayer tonight. I ask that y'all would, as I'm preaching tonight, be praying for me uh, that I would do justice to the text that we're going to be going through. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, looking at verses 21 through the end of the chapter. It's 10 verses, 21 through 31. But contained within these 10 verses is a truth that is so deep and so profound uh, that it literally changes who we are. Um, and it is a truth that I pray uh, that, I, that I speak clearly and that I speak in a way that you can understand it. And I pray that God's Spirit would uh, take hold of each and every one of us uh, fresh again as believers. This should be something that is not new to us. Uh, though our understanding of it may grow in time, it is something that we'll find each of us as believers have experienced. Um, if there's anyone among us tonight who may not know this, then my prayer also is that you would, maybe for the first time, uh, this truth uh, sink into your hearts, um, because it is beautiful truth. Um, so let's open up in prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, I thank you that you have brought us here tonight, and I thank you for the studies prior to this that have led us up to this point. Lord, if in any way uh, I have failed you in presenting your your word up to this point, then I repent of that, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would make right any wrongs that I might have made along the way. It is the desire of my heart to uh, proclaim the truth of your word uh, clearly and concisely, uh, and that I always pray that you would go before me uh, as I stand to preach that your Holy Spirit would be moving in the hearts of your people uh, or stirring for the first time the hearts of unbelievers. Uh, as we as we dive into this text that is so rich and so powerful and so beautiful, I ask that you would Seal my lips that I speak nothing of myself, uh, Lord, that um, as we have labored much through the book of Ecclesiastes and now through the first part of the book of Romans, that we now get to the beautiful promise and the beautiful hope that we have as we spend the next couple of weeks to months digging through this truth. I pray, Lord, that it would um, be grounded in us. Uh, like never before, that the roots of your gospel would grow down deep into our lives, that it would transform us in the way that we live, in the way that we communicate with one another, in the way that we live before a lost and dying world, that it would be the kind of gospel and take the kind of uh, hold on our lives that we would live freely in Christ uh, for the glory of your name, for your praise and honor, and for the hope that is to be found in this lost world only in You. Uh, Lord, I can't ask You enough to guide me in this because this is a truth that is so weighty, so miraculous. Lord, I've been praying diligently For who knows how long. 
Lord, I've preached these messages in my mind. Only you know how many times. For this church, for these people. Lord, I love them. I love you. I thank you for the gospel and hope that we have in it. May you move in mighty and powerful ways. Because if you do not move, Lord, we will not be moved. It's in Christ's name, for his glory. Amen. So tonight, we are going to be in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But we're going to back up one verse to kind of remind ourselves where we left off uh, two weeks ago. But before that, I want to kind of give you, I've written down an outline of kind of, there's so much to get out of this text. and, And my fear is that as I'm going through it, I might miss a point or two along the way. So I kind of wrote things down, and what I what I would like to do is just kind of read through the kind of bullet points that I'd put together of all that can be found in these ten verses, and I'm going to read that to you just in case as I'm going through it verse by verse that I were, for some reason, to miss something, that it would at least uh, have been spoken, and maybe your eyes or ears would be looking for it, even if we don't stop on that particular point and address it specifically through the sermon. So... Um, What we're going to be dealing with in this verse is the righteousness of God. And specifically the righteousness of God manifested. And He manifests His righteousness really two specific ways. First, God's righteousness is given to the believer. This is done apart from the law. It's given as a gift of grace because all have fallen. And it's given through faith. It's provided through Christ's work which God put forward as a propitiation in its own God's terms to be received by faith. So that's the first way in which God's righteousness is manifested. The second way is God's righteousness is preserved, right? God's righteousness is preserved. What do I mean by that? God, in past times we're going to find, has actually passed over former sins. This is the wording that the Scripture gives. God passed over former sins. There's going to be two things that I want us to see in this. I want us to understand that grace is shown to all who sin. All sinners have received grace. Right? There's going to be two ways in which we're going to see this grace play out. But one thing that I want to kind of address First is we're going to see that that when you sin, you immediately deserve death on the spot. So we find in the Old Testament God telling Adam that if he breaks this law, that he'll surely die. And he breaks the law and he's given some time on the order of hundreds of years. So he doesn't immediately die. And when he doesn't immediately die, that is grace moving in. So every sinner, whether they come to know the, re- the grace that, that redeems us by placing their faith in the work of Christ, or whether they receive a common grace that is the grace that allows them to take yet another breath as they, pro- as they just profane the name of God, that is a type of grace that is common to all. And all grace is secured in the work that Christ has done to show that God is in fact just and does 
punish sin. So that for the saved, we see God punishing sin in the cross with Christ. And as a warning to those who do not trust in Christ, we know that that sin that they have committed and continue to commit will be reconciled uh, at the judgment seat. Uh, Second, uh, we see throughout the Old Testament that God counted sinful men as righteous. Right? Abraham was not a good man. Look at the life that he lived. Noah, not a good man. Look at anyone throughout Scripture apart from Christ, and what you're going to find is sinful men. Yet God calls sinful men righteous who place their faith in Christ. Right? Who place their faith in a God who makes promises and fulfills promises. So we're going to see this idea play out. And in this, God's preserving His righteousness. And we see this showing God to be both just as well as the justifier of those who place their faith in Christ. Sin is punished and the full cup of wrath is finished and completed. Christ tells us this as He's on the cross, that it is finished. He has drank the full cup of the wrath of God and completed it. So the work that Christ did is a complete work. God does the work of justification, right? God justifies. This is a point that I want us to see as we're digging through this text, that God is both just and He is also the justifier. You do not justify yourself before God. God has put forward the work that justifies you before Him. Right? So we're going to see that as we dig through this. And this is going to lead us to a major truth, something that I hope that we uh, really land on hard, is that, that this shows that God is worthy, and only God is worthy, to be to receive praise and to be worshipped. And because of what He's done, we are, in fact, obligated to praise Him and worship Him. He is due praise and worship. And God alone, this... Uh, in manifesting His righteousness, He manifests in this way. It, it, he places the honor on Himself and He leaves man without place to boast. He swings wide the door to all people for all have sinned and called uh, and are called to, his, to marvel at His wonderful grace. So this is kind of the, the ideas that are going to be encompassed in this verse. I, I kind of wanted to mention that, like I say, up front. So as we're digging through it, if for whatever reason um, I were to, to stumble and... and forget to point out something specifically. So the first thing that I want us to do is I want us to go back and reflect. We're actually going to look at two verses that we've, or a couple of verses that we've looked at previously. One, I want us to remember uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, because now we're really going to be digging into the truth that was kind of encompassed in those two verses, right? So let's just go back for the sake of review and look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by Faith. From this point, in the last couple of weeks, we've been digging through the problem. Do y'all remember what the problem is? Do you, do you remember why we need a gospel at all? Sin, and who sins? We sin. Sinners sin. The human race is fallen, enslaved to sin, and that is a problem. That's where we kind of left off last week. 
or excuse me, two weeks ago, we left off in verse 20. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 20, and just take a quick look at, at this text. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I want us to, to think about this word justified, because we're going to kind of see it a couple of times through this. I want us to think the ideas of justification. I want us to think of the ideas uh, surrounding the, 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 the word righteousness. What do these things mean? What does it mean to be justified? Can, can somebody, right? So you would be justified, an instance where you would be justified is if you had never broken a commandment of God and you stood before God, you would stand righteous and also justified. How would you be justified in that particular instance? If you, and it's not possible, but in the case, let's let's just pretend, it was possible that you could live without breaking a commandment of God and that you could produce within yourself righteousness and you stand before God. How do you stand before God? Righteous and justified. But how are you justified in that particular case? By your own efforts. By your own works. Right? You justify yourself in that particular case. But what have we shown that the problem of sin has done? We cannot justify ourselves before God. And the law, can it provide any help in that regard? Why can the law not help us then to be made righteous or be justified before God. Why can the law not do this? The text shows us. Right? What does that text say? For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Whose sight? God's sight. Since through the law comes what? The knowledge or consciousness, the awareness of what sin is. But, When you read God's Word, and when you see the law, and you read it, what does it do to you? Does it show you what you will do, or does it show you what you've not done? Right? It shows you specifically how you fall short of what? The righteousness of God. When you look at God's Word, you don't then say, well, now I'm going to be able to live righteously. Right? Because the law can't undo what you've already done. Does that make sense? Is that clear? That when you see the law not to covet, you realize, I've coveted. It cannot undo the fact that you have broken that law. Do we see that? Do we see that the law reveals how sinful we are? But in no way does it provide a means that we can live righteously. Or that we could be justified before God. Does that make sense? Right? The law, in fact, will do what when we stand before God if we don't stand in Christ? What will it do? It will condemn us. If all we had when we stood before God was the law, we would stand condemned before God. Because of why? Because of what reason? Because you are a sinner. Right? And you sin. And the law just shows you how sinful you are. 
And we've been working through this kind of laboriously. We've just tirelessly been tracking through this text. And even as we were, uh, you know, for a year going through the book of Ecclesiastes, like the whole purpose and all of that was to kind of make way for this idea that it's not in any way something that we can do. We can't work up righteousness, right? Because we are, at our core, unrighteous. This is a, a big deal because when you look at the way that the world does religion, the world does religion as though it is a scale to be weighed towards the end of righteousness. Right? When what truly it is, is that it is as like a cup of water that you were to drop food coloring into. And it's not going to be part of it that is righteous and Part of it that is unrighteous. The unrighteousness, the color is going to invade every single part of that liquid that you drop it into. Right? To where there's no separating between the two. So it's not a matter of, can I weigh it in one direction or the other? It's a matter of fact that when you sin just one time, in one way, that you are completely unrighteous. Not partly. Not in some part could you undo that. And when you see the law, the law does not help you. So that's a problem. Up until Christ on the cross, all that there was was what? Promises that had been made. That God would cover it. And law that was given to show you why you need God to fulfill these promises. Right? And we find in the Old Testament... People believe in God for these promises that are counted righteous before God for something that He had not even yet done. So let's dig deeper into this. And again, I ask that you would lift me up in your prayers as I go through this text. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. I want you to be thinking. So I'm going to ask this question, but I don't expect you to answer it back right now. I want you to be thinking about it as we go through this text. What is the righteousness of God in this text referring to? Right? What is it referring to? When it says the righteousness of God is manifested or now has been manifested, what does it mean? In what regard? In what way has God's righteousness been manifested? Right? I want you to think about this. Right? I want you to let it kind of churn a little bit. I want you to ask yourself the question, if I were to go back and look in the Old Testament, can I not see the, the same righteousness in the Old Testament as it is found in the New Testament? Like, in what way is the righteousness of God made in some way more, more evident? That it can use this word manifest. Right? That God has now manifested His righteousness. He's done it in a very specific way, too. Right? He's done it apart from the law. That's what the text here says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What truth do we get from that last particular passage of text? 
As we're digging through this, as we're looking at this, for the importance of the words and the way these, these sentences are strung together, when we look at the last part of that, that it's apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We've been told about it. Right? God's Word has been bearing witness to the truth that is now being revealed. So though it's now being made clear, right? Now it's being manifested, so it should be obvious to all who have been seeing these clues along the way before it was given in ways that would be maybe less clear or or could be maybe misunderstood to mean something else, or maybe interpreted in another way, until Christ comes on the scene. And now all that Christ has done, we look back and we can see how He's been fulfilling these things. Right? So that where we see, like, Moses leading the people out of Egypt. Right? What is this representing and pushing forward to in the New Testament? Right? Does Moses go into the promised land? Oh, we're going we're gonna to stop for a moment and we're going to look at how all this, in this one particular case where we find that the Old Testament is pointing forward to a truth that we find in the New Testament, right? So Moses leads the people out of the promise, or out of Egypt, out of bondage. But it does, he, he doesn't lead them where? Into the promised land, right? Who leads them into the promised land? Joshua. Joshua is who? In this particular instance. He's a reflection of Christ, and Moses is a reflection of the law. And the law leads you out, but it cannot lead you in. It can reveal a need, but it cannot take you in. Right? And we look at it in that way, and I ask myself the question, was Moses ever, could he have ever gone in to the promised land? If God in all of this is working out stories that He's fulfilling and telling and showing in Christ, it's been... What does the text say? It's been shown all along. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. To what? To the righteousness of God. Who is the righteousness of God? I want us to be thinking about this. Right? I want us to be letting this sink in. Who? Let's just go ahead and answer. Who is the righteousness of God? Christ is. Christ is. And I want you to... I want to Tell you something else. You, believer, you are now. You are now. And this is the truth of what's happened at the cross. Is that Christ has taken our place. And we've been now given the righteousness of God. So when God looks at you, this is so fundamental. This is so weighty a truth. When God looks at you, believer, do you know what He sees? He sees the blood of Christ, and what does that make you? The righteousness of God. How often is it that when we live our lives, and we find ourselves struggling that we see ourselves less than God actually sees us. This is, a, this is, a, this is like a, a fundamental positional truth. When you believe, you are placed in a position of a relationship with God that you are not undone from by your works because you were never placed there by your works. 
This is so fundamental to the Christian faith. So fundamental to the way that we should live our lives. Right? So you can live, and what we're going to find is you can live in freedom. No, no longer concerning yourself about whether or not you're going to stand before God, and He's going to be like, man, you just didn't make the cut. You didn't make it. So you don't have to focus on that. You're freed to serve God in a new way. In a way that's led by a Spirit. And we're going we're gonna to get there. So I want you to understand that, that this righteousness has been told about throughout the law. Throughout the prophets. It's been witnessed to all along the way. This is not a new thing. And Paul will labor throughout this book to show the Jewish believer who may still have their eyes blinded by the culture that they were living in. That this is not something new. That the law and the prophets had been witnessing and testifying to the truth of the promise and the one who would fulfill that promise. The one who put forward that promise. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read this. We're going to go back through. This is, this is one of those passages of text that, that you could literally spend days upon days digging through. We're not going to do that. Um, but I, I would like you to go and just, maybe in your personal study, just spend some time focusing on just how packed with, with, with thought and ideas and, and deep, deep truth this, this passage, this run of text is. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be, reve- to be received by faith. That's a, that's a deep text, right? That is a deep text. And we're going to kind of push through it little by little and, and, and extract out the truth here. Verse 22 starts off the righteousness of God. What righteousness is this? The righteousness of who? Of Christ. But look at the way that it... Look at the way that it words this. Whose righteousness? It's Christ's righteousness. Okay? So I want to ask you this. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Or in Jesus Christ. So does... does Christ, have faith in Christ. Is that what that's trying to tell us? Is that this righteousness that's now been made manifest is Christ having faith in Himself? No. So who is the righteousness of God? And how is it revealed? How is it applied? How does it flow down? Through faith In who? Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you become the righteousness of God. Now I'm going to throw out some words for you here, and some of you may not care, and others of you, you may. So I'm going to throw it out. There's this idea of double imputation, right? This is a theological term here. Uh, If you care, good. If you don't, Tune out and maybe come back later. Alright? The idea of double imputation is this. Is that the righteousness of Christ is placed on you. 
Your sinfulness is placed on Christ on the cross, right? So this idea of something being imputed, something being given or placed on Christ's righteousness, imputed to you. The righteousness of God imputed to you how? Through faith in Christ. So what does this mean if you place your faith in Christ? What does it mean? Does it feel uncomfortable to think of yourself as righteous? Church, does it feel uncomfortable? It feels a little uncomfortable. Let's be honest. Especially after going through the book of Ecclesiastes and now the first chapter and and some odd of the book of Romans we see sin and we see how sinful we are and we know, all of us know, that we still struggle with sin. We still wrestle with sin. Even as Christians... You, friend, are righteous. And when God looks at you, He sees righteousness. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Because if you have, you are the righteousness of God. Does that, has, does that sink down on us? We should probably stop and just do praise right now. You are the righteousness of God. It's not heretical. It's biblical. This is the work that was done on the cross, not a partial work. Get this. Get this. What Christ did on the cross was full and complete. The work of the cross is full and complete. You have to offer nothing else up to God to be considered righteous before Him. That's freedom. That is freedom, friends. There's nothing more you have to do. It is that simple. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And you're going to say, what about faith without works? What about faith without works? And we'll continue on as we dig through the book of Romans. You go and look in some other books, James. That would be a good one to look at. And and you can see that, that this faith... This faith that makes this transition where God applies the work of Christ over your life, this faith is accompanied by works. And this is scary. This is scary because you like to sit in pews. You do. But what I want to tell you is this faith, actions flow from it. Work flows from it. We do not work towards righteousness. We stand firm in righteousness given to us undeservedly by the grace of God and we work out of it. And if we understand this grace, if we understand where we stand now with God, you would give everything you had to work out of it. To work towards what you've already been given. This is the, the beauty of it. This is the beauty of it. Is you, Christian, if you place your faith in Christ, will not, cannot fail. Do you get this? Why can you not fail? Because when Christ said He was finished, He didn't say I'm finished, but... He didn't say I'm finished, but now you have to do your part. You overcome by the blood 
of the Lamb. And the word of your testimony. By the blood of the Lamb. And the word of your testimony. Believers. And this, is, this is where this is so powerful and so life changing. So, is because you're not working to try to get to right standing with God. You have been given right standing with God. You are through the work of Christ, the righteousness of God. And out of that should flow overflows of joy and praise. Should flow lives filled with the desire to serve the One who gave to you what you could never earn for yourself. Sit on that, church. Rest in that, please. Let that, let that sink in. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here's the key. Here's the key. Who's it for? All who what? Believe. This is why we go and we call people to believe. We go and we preach the gospel. Because it's not just going to be people dying in other places that have never heard the gospel and stand before God and are counted. Who's counted? Who believes? And this is why as we dig in through this, what you're going to find is that, a, is that a gospel that's centered and focused in Christ is a gospel that you cannot sit still in your pews with. It is a gospel that leads you out. Because how will they believe if they've never heard? And how will they hear if nobody preaches to them? And how will anybody preach to them unless somebody is sent out? This is in Romans. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. So, as we start digging into these truths, I want us to be examining our lives. Right? I want to be examining our lives. I want you to be thinking about your life. Do you believe it? Are you kind of sort of convinced of it? Is it something that you're comfortable with, but you don't want it invading too much of your life? Right? As long as it can, you know, it's my culture. You know, I'm in the South. We do church. You know? Am I comfortable with that? Or do I believe it from start to finish? Because as Jesus is ascending up, He's sending people out. Right? As He's ascending, He's sending. This gospel is a gospel that demands us, that demands us to work, not for righteousness, but out of the righteousness that has been given to us. I want us to get that. This gospel is not for the lazy, right? It provides for us something we could have never worked for. And then we work out of that, right? I want y'all to, I want y'all to understand that difference. Do y'all get that difference? Do y'all understand the difference from working for something and working out of something? Y'all get that? Yes. I don't Yeah, I don't I don't want I don't want us to miss it, right? I don't want us to miss that point because that is a that is a key point. Right? That is a key point that needs to sink down deep that we understand that. It's for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction. Why is there no distinction? Paul has, for the last couple of chapters, been showing us why there is no distinction. Why there is no distinction for what? For who can believe this gospel? You do not first have to know the Ten Commandments. Right? You didn't have to be given the law. You don't have to go. It's not a mandate that you go and read from beginning Genesis chapter 1 up to the start of the New Testament before you can understand the gospel. Right? There's no requirements. There's no you do this first and then you can be presented with the gospel. Right? The gospel starts with what? Where have we been doing? What have we been working through? The presentation of the gospel does not start in chapter 3. It starts showing us that everyone is on an even playing field. All have sinned. All have fallen short. That's what it says, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's where we're going to stop and we're going to think about this a little bit more too. Because if you want to think about the standard that you would have to have to stand before God, right? That standard of righteousness. What would it have to be? More than sinless. More than sinless. I want you to, I want you to get this. That when Christ died in the position that you stand in before God, you do not stand as Adam and Eve before the fall. Do y'all get that? That Adam and Eve before the fall had not sinned, right? But you do not stand in that position, right? As though now you've got a clean slate, and now you, as long as you don't trip up, as long as you don't fall. Do y'all see that? Do y'all see that Adam and Eve, they had no sin at the beginning, right? You don't want to be made like Adam and Eve, right? You don't just want your slate cleaned. There's a fundamental difference in what the gospel provides. And it is not a clean slate. Right? Because if all you were given was a clean slate, do you know what you would do? You would sin and you would fall and you could lose it. Christ lived a life for you. Have you ever wondered why He had to do it the way that He did it? In the life that He lived. The 30 some odd years before He was placed on a cross. The righteous life that He lived. In every nail that He nailed. In every conversation that He had. In every way that He lived. That He did not fail God. Even in one way that He did not sin. Even in one way. That was given to you. He had to live. Because you could not. So He could not just come down from heaven, be nailed to a cross, and then that be it. Because this idea of double imputation, you're given His righteousness. He lived the life of perfection in your place. And on the cross, those who would believe in it are given that righteousness. And He is given on the cross our sin. The full wrath of God's. And He finished it. He finished it. So you're not made like Adam and Eve when you put your faith in God. As though now your slate is clean. 
You're done one better. You are given the righteousness of Christ. He lived the life of perfection for you. And that is huge. I want you to think on that. That may be a little difficult to grasp, that you're just not given a clean slate, but you're given something more. But I want you to get that as something very true. Right? I want you to think about that. I want you to think, as you go home tonight, I want it to be a seed planted in your heart, that you start thinking about the difference between Adam and Eve and the difference of Christ. Do you know what happens if Christ is in the garden at the beginning and, and, and Satan's like, hey, eat this. You know what Christ does? He doesn't fail. He doesn't fail. When tempted, He doesn't fail. His character is different. You, if you were placed in the position of Adam and Eve, do you know what you do? You fail. You fail. Time after time. Person after person. Any human being who has ever breathed breath placed in that situation, do you know what they do? They fail time after time. No one succeeds in that. In what would seem to be the simplest task. Why? Because we need something more than a clean slate. We need to be made righteous. Right? This is the gospel. Right? This is the gospel. And all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. What is grace? We talked about it a little bit tonight in class. Dad, what's grace? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. What does that mean? That grace is something that you didn't deserve, that you didn't work for, that you couldn't work for. And it was given to you. Right? God's shown grace to you. Who of you would have asked for that grace? Who of you? You've heard the gospel preached if you believe. If you're a believer, you've heard the gospel preached and you've placed your faith into that. But I want to, I want to tell you that what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You did not. You would not have ever sought after God. God's grace came for you. Do you understand? Man, I don't know that we... Maybe we get it a little. I don't know that we get it a lot. Because if there's ever a time to amen, it would be then. That God came for you. He came for you when you weren't looking for Him. His grace was given to you freely. And I'm going to use the word freely here, and we're going to look at it a little bit and, and as we press on in another passage of text in the, in the future. But God gave His gift freely, and a lot of times we think about, about that word freely because it's going to say here, it's going to say that he, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right? So when we think of this gift, we oftentimes think of like the ease of gifts. Right? When we think about God giving us a gift, we think about like somebody gives me a gift, man, that's free. 
It calls none. Like, that's the way that we tend in our minds to look towards gifts. We look to it at a, at a gift from our perspective of it. Right? This idea of grace or a gift given in grace, I want you to understand it speaks more of the giver of the gift than it does to the way in which you receive it. I want you to think about that. The price is enormous for your redemption. We've, we've looked and we've dug tirelessly through Scripture to show you that you could not, if it was required of you, work to pay the price of this gift that has been freely given by God to you. I want you to think of Him. Shane preached this morning and it is absolute truth that God in no way needs you. Like he wasn't sitting around in eternity past thinking, Jesus, Holy Spirit, it's, a, it's awfully boring with nothing going on. Don't we need somebody to love? We need some... He was not sitting around in need of you. He gave you life. He's given m- many of us time after time after time where His grace has stepped in to allow us to live, to bring us to the point in our lives where we would listen and hear and place our faith in Him. How many of us, how many of us heard the Gospel for the first time and probably walked away from it? How many? How many? And God showed His grace in giving. I want you to think about the character of God. When you think about the grace that was given don't, don't be self-centered. I mean, there's an aspect that it was definitely given to you and you definitely receive it without having to pay anything for it apart from, you know, your whole life, right? But you don't have to go out and work and then say, here, God, I did these three tasks and now let me stand before you and get this grace. He, he definitely offers it to you and, and there's, there's no stipulations, right? There's no, you must do this first, right? But... Let's, let's, when we think about grace, let's try to think about it from the perspective of a God who needs nothing, who gives everything, right? When we think about grace, let's, let's focus on it from that end of things, right? Let's consider it from, from that side. Because when we think about that, I want you to, I want you to get that as we start moving away from self, and we, we start focusing our hearts, our minds, our attention on God and heavenly things, then it starts opening us up as individuals to live our lives in very different ways than the way that we live our lives when we're focused on self. Right? So when we think about grace, when we think about this gift, there's an aspect in which not a single one of you, if you were to come up here tonight and want redemption, would have to pay somebody something to get it. But that's because the God who gives freely of His own will, He owed you nothing. He owed you nothing. Do we get this? Do we understand that? Adam could have fallen. And God could have done what? Wiped it out? Or let it go on and on and on and on. Sin just abounding and abounding. And then one day... All that lived stand before Him guilty. 
And He would be just in that. The beauty of the Gospel is that not only has He manifested Himself in a way to show Himself just, but He's also the justifier. Not Because He could have done that. He could have done that. He was free to let everyone die in their sin. He was free to that. He was bound by nothing until He started promising and promising and promising. He bound Himself to us freely. This is what we should be considering when we consider this free gift that's offered up. That God, bound to us in no way, has offered us the greatest gift. And He's offered it not only to us, but to everyone who will believe. I believe, truly believe, that as we press through this book, as the truth of this sinks down on us, that it will change us in a fundamental way as a church, as a body of believers, as a community of believers, in a way that we will live differently in our families, in our community, in our state, in our country, throughout the entire world. I believe that. And I believe that God's going to do that. I believe that He's been doing that. And that He'll continue to do that. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where then does this gift originate? Can you tell me? Where does this gift originate? Does it originate with your faith? No. It originates at the cross. And I want you to know that the cross was eternally in the mind of God. Christ was the Lamb slayed before the foundation of the world. He was not plan B. He was not, they messed up, now I've got to fix things. He was the Lamb slain before the beginning was the beginning. He was the Lamb slain before the earth was formed. Before you breathed your first breath or before you cried your first cry as a baby. He was the Lamb slain for you, if you would believe. So this gift by which we're justified by His grace... It's through the work of Christ. So if you negate the work of Christ, your faith is in vain. Paul says this, he says that if Christ be not risen, then our faith is in vain. That we're more pitiful than any if Christ is just for this life. Everything that you have and hold to and hope for is grounded in the work of Christ. And this is a beautiful thing because the work of Christ is complete. The work of Christ is complete. There's nothing to be added to what Christ has done for us. Why are we not spreading this like we should? Why are we not... Why are we focusing more on what we have and and how I can get more stuff and how I can live more comfortably here 
than living in the fact that I know that if I die tomorrow, that it's gain for me. Believers, if you die today, tomorrow is better for you. It is. We don't live like this. Maybe because we got some doubt. Maybe. Maybe doubt holds up a little bit. Maybe, maybe we, we haven't been in this enough to really know how sure this hope is. So we doubt a little. I want to encourage you that your hope is sure. Your hope is sure. Because your hope does not lie in what you do today or what you do tomorrow. But your life is secured by the work that was completed by Christ on the cross. It is finished, is what He said. Do you believe Him? Do you believe Him? That's faith. You get, do you believe that He spoke truth? Do you believe that when He said He was the Son of God, that He was the Son of God? Do you believe that when He died on the cross, that your sin was placed upon Him so that His righteousness could be placed upon you? Do you believe that? That's faith. What does it take to be saved? Repent. Believe. Be baptized. That's what Peter says. He's opening up. Do you know, do you want to, it's an interesting thing. I want you to think about it. This is an interesting thing. He doesn't say repent, or he doesn't say, uh, be baptized, believe, repent, right? So I want you to think about the ordering of these things. And I want you to think about what I said, that you don't work for your salvation, but you work out of it. And think of the ordering. Repent, believe. What is baptism? It's a work, an outward working. It is a symbol of what's been done and what is continuing to be done in us. So when we downplay baptism, do you know what we're downplaying? What should be the rightful response of the believer? When we believe we should out of that work, repent, believe, be baptized. There's an ordering to that. That is an important ordering. And for the believer, you're not baptized so that you are saved. You're baptized because you are saved. Right? So let's not negate the full truth of God's Word. Let's not downplay one thing because maybe it makes us feel a little uncomfortable in places. Right? Let's take God's Word as a whole. And now we look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. There is so much in that. There is so much in that. Who put Christ forward? And when was this done? It was done on the cross. But when was the cross done? When was it set? When was it no turning back? Eternally. Eternally. It was set in the mind of God. Do we get this? That you as a believer were fixed eternally in the mind of God. In Christ. Do you get that? That God put forward His Son? He loves you. Unquestionably, He loves you. 
To where when you would not ask for His Son to be sent, you would not ask for a price to be paid, you would much rather go on living in your sin. He sends His Son to die on a cross for you. That if you would believe, you would have life. That's the Gospel. God put forward His Son as a, as a what? Whom God put forward as a propitiation. What is a propitiation? Does anybody know? A sacrifice for atonement. A substitution. Right? Christ stands as a mediator for us. It is because of the work of Christ that you can have life. Right? Christ is the propitiation. Right? So if you want to know what that means, that means that if it was not for Christ... You stand guilty before God and you take the full wrath of God. And that will take an eternity. That will take an eternity. Because you're not Christ. Only Christ can finish the cup. Only Christ can finish the cup. So God puts Christ forward as a propitiation in your place that if you would believe what? What does the Scripture say? So it's a propitiation by His blood. By His blood. So it was His life poured out on the cross to be received by what? Faith. So if you heard the message preached tonight and you believe it, and I'm not talking about just yet, it sounds okay. Right? I'm talking about if you place your... See, this is, this is the difference, right? Like when we just like throw Jesus down on the cross, like, you know, like we just make it something very simple. Like, you're like, well, okay, I, I believe it. But when you get, when you know that the righteousness of Christ is placed on you, when you place your faith in Him, and your sin was placed on Him on the cross, that gives you something to believe in. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because your hope is fixed in that. That is faith. Your hope fixed in something. Right? So when I ask you, do you believe it? I'm talking about will you live your life out now, safe and secure in the arms of Christ, knowing that He finished the work that you could never complete. Do you believe that? Christian, do you believe that? Do you walk in that every single day? Look at your life. Examine your pattern of living. Because here's the truth that we're going to find. Is that when God is in you, there is clear evidence that He is in you. Because He alone changes you. He alone changes you. So if there's change in you towards holiness, towards righteousness, that's the work of God and God alone that can produce that in you. If instead your pattern of living looks no different than the pattern of living before you believed with air quotes, then maybe you didn't believe. Maybe you didn't believe. I want you to believe. I want you to believe. It's something worth believing in. It's something worth living for. Something that God has put forward for us to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So now the second aspect of God's righteousness. One, God showing His righteousness in us as we place our faith in 
Christ the second now God showing himself righteous why because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins you look throughout the old testament God rightly could could just snatch the life out of you first sin worthy of death at that moment in that instant but he gives you life he gives you chances he's now put forward his son we look in the Old Testament and we find Abraham, who like I say, go back and look at his life. The guy sinned just like everyone else. And God says, righteous. You believe me? Righteous. Well, what about the punishment of sin? What about that little passage of text that says that, that, there, that where there's no blood poured out, there's no forgiveness? What about all of this? You're going to just let Abraham off the hook? No, he was never going to let Abraham off the hook. For eternity he had Abraham in his mind. For eternity he had the cross in his mind. And though for a time as his redemptive plan was being worked out, though for a time it may have seemed as though God was unjust, now he's made his justice manifest. He's shown himself now to be one who punishes sin. And who makes men righteous. Through that work. He is both just and the justifier. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to ask you, and Paul raises this question in verse 27, what then becomes of our boasting? Who who among us can boast in anything but the cross? Who? Who? None. Why? Why none? Is it excluded? Or it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I want you to, to, to note in verse 28 here, we hold, right? This, this word here used It's kind of like a word coming to a conclusion. Now we would conclude from what? From what? From the verses that have led led us here before. From chapter 1 verse 16 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now he pours out over passage after passage, showing that no one is righteous, showing that it could not be by the law, for we hold that no one, or that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Why apart from the works of the law? Why apart? Because clearly, as it has been shown, no man can be justified before God. In his sight. Verse 20 of chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we hold that it's justification by faith. You are justified by placing your faith in the finished and completed work of Christ. You are justified before God. Eternally justified before God. By placing your faith in Christ. You are moved from darkness to light. To live in light. Out of that light. Showing that light to the world. To those who are still in darkness. 
And this is where he goes with this next passage. Right? This is the idea, the flow, that because of this it leads to something. Right? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Uh, the question could be restated, is God the God of Mount Carmel only? Is He? Is He? Or are we the only ones that need to hear this good news? Just practically, do we live like that as a church body? I want us to think about that, right? As individuals, do we live like that? Like He's mine and nobody else's? Like this good news is for me only? I think sometimes we do. I think sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, man, I got it and I'm good with that. Right? I got it and I'm going to go to work and I'm going to be quiet about it at work so that I don't, I don't want to rock the boat any. You know? And when, I, when, I, when I'm around my friends, I don't want to say too much about it because I like hanging out with them and I don't want them to feel uncomfortable around me. Is God the God of... Mount Carmel only. Is He the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? This, this question that He's presenting, He's presenting it in this way. Right? Because it would at least seem in some ways that throughout the Old Testament that He was God of just the Jewish people. And He's asking the question here, what does this Gospel do with that idea? What does the gospel do with the idea that it is only for a select few? It crushes that idea. How does it crush that idea? By showing that all are on an equal playing field at the foot of the cross. Right? Yes, he he says, uh, middle of verse 29. Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. What is he saying here? There's only one God... So clearly, the God of the Jews is also the God of the Gentiles. The God who the Jews should worship, the Gentiles should likewise worship. He deserves worship from the whole world. This gospel is opening up this truth that the Jews had kind of held to themselves, that they were really supposed to be a lot in the world. Oh, man, I want you to think about how the church has almost become the Jews of our day. Well, we like to keep that lot just bottled up in here. It's us and us only. For whatever reason, whether it be we're afraid to share it, or whether we feel like we're not, we don't have eloquent enough speech to share it, or we don't have an education enough to share it, for whatever reason it may be, God is the God of... All. He says, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by faith? So now Paul, and, and he's going to answer this through chapter 4. We're going to kind of wrap up with uh, just the end of chapter 3 here. We're going to think about this idea, um, and then we're going to address it next time as we, as we gather together. So this idea... So what, what does this, how do you play this justification by faith in with the law that has been given? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And he quickly responds, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. This is this concept, right? 
that apart from Christ, you can in no way measure up to the law. So you do not work towards righteousness by works of the law. But from a standpoint of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, now you can work towards holiness. In fact, the Holy Spirit will find is what drives you towards holiness. The Holy Spirit produces for us fruit and change in our lives that could not be produced elsewhere. So, in one respect, we uphold the law through faith. In another regard, the law finds its proper place now that faith and the work of Christ is on the scene. What is the place and the purpose of the law? Do we throw it out? No. We use it. You, as a believer, read it. The Holy Spirit shows you how far you have to go. And He drives you towards that. Right? So it's used to reprove, not to improve. Right? God's Word reproves us. The Holy Spirit improves us. Right? We're going to end here tonight. I want to close this in prayer and then we'll do worship. Uh, I want, I just, man, I ask that y'all would continue pray for me as I uh, prep to, to teach this. Um, that I would do justice to the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the truth that is found in Your Word. I thank You for my church family here. Um, Lord, that they would come and that they would listen. And and I, I love them. They have been such an inspiration to me and my family over the years. Uh, so many faces here uh, that were here before me. Lord, um, they're still here. And the, the testimony of their lives being lived out in faith in the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it, it comforts me. It, it shows me that, you know, they don't all go away. That, that you do, in fact, have some that you are holding and pushing towards righteousness. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the witness of their lives uh, in this church. Uh, Lord, uh, the, the impact that they've had on me, the encouragement that it's been to see uh, them faithful uh, to Mount Carmel as a church body, as a body of believers, and them being faithful to you ultimately uh, in their witnesses in and out of this church building. Lord, as we dig through this, uh, as we dig through this book, as we dig through the scripture, I pray that um, you would use me to encourage them. That you would, that you would refine me in the process. That I could uh, speak boldly and truthfully this this gospel in such a way as that uh, you would uh, use the the gifts that you have uh, given me uh, among this church body, and that we would all together be encouraged. Uh, and likewise, that each and every one of us as, as individuals would use the gifts that you have distributed by the power and the will of your Holy Spirit among us, that we would use those gifts uh, for your glory, uh, that we would stand in that position of righteousness that's been given to us because we wholeheartedly have placed our trust and hope in the work of Christ that was finished on the cross. I, I thank you. Uh, again and again and again for this body of believers. I thank you for uh, our pastor. Um, I want to pray specifically for Donna. Um, there are many others sick and, and hurting within our church that I want to uh, lift them up as well. You know each and every situation. You know each and every need. And I thank you that uh, you work through the, the best of times and you work through the worst of times. 
um, all for the purpose of bringing us uh, closer to you and and bringing our lives in closer reliance uh, to this gospel, to this hope that we have in the work of Christ. I thank you so much. Uh, I love you, and uh, I thank you for this church. It's in Christ's name. Amen.